Guten Tag, top of the morning. Today is September 6th, 2020, and this is Sam Walking in the World, episode 21. I've got a lot of things today that kind of are a mixture, uh, so it might feel like I'm jumping around, but um, this is the stuff that I feel like talking about since I'm the only employee and boss of the show. I'll decide what I'm going to talk about. I hope you listen. Um, today's episode, uh, I have some stupid stuff about the fruit juice. I love fruit juice. Pretty much all kinds. Um, in lifey stuff, I'm going to talk about uh, a creature in the box situation. I've described the creature in the box as when somebody is in a condition or state of mind or perspective where they are unaware of what they're doing. They believe that it's one thing, but that's only because they're not outside the box looking in. Remember, the directions to how to get out of the box are written on the outside. And if you don't allow someone to read them to you, you stay stuck inside your box. It's about perspective. If it's the first time you've heard me talk about it, you'll understand more as I explain it. It's better explained through examples. So that's Creature in the Box. I'm going to talk about fashion and foreign accents about how those can be instances where people are in a box. And I'm going to talk about celebrity spokesmen for charities, commercials that you see for charities where there's a, an actor or celebrity spokesman. And uh, they, something struck me about them that I, I wanted to talk about a little I was thinking about. In happiness sense, I have a few OCD barometers, uh, how to know whether you got your OCD in check. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about changing gears. For me, I'm a teacher, so going back to school is kind of a gear change. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how I handle it, how I've handled it in the past, and what's better, I think, about how I handle it now. And then in larger things, I'm going to talk about Robert O'Neill, the man named Robert O'Neill. Um, you may not know him by name, but I bet you do know him after I explain talking so much about remembering people's names say his name say his name well uh, i was doing something today and uh, this man's name came to me and i it's a name i hope you don't forget um which many people probably already have but i will get right to it <clears throat> okay and stupid stuff why is there no cherry juice i love cherries um it's kind of a pain taking the pits out of them before you bite them, but they have little things you can stomp down and the pits come out, and you can eat a whole handful of cherries. The way you could eat a whole handful of seedless grapes if you wanted. I love grapes. Um, I love grape juice. It's a, a natural sequitur. Orange juice. Without pulp. I can't stand drinking and having pulp go down my throat. I don't know why. It's another one of my OCD things. But, I mean, I guess it's understandable. You don't want, like, flecks of things going down your throat. It just triggers your brain that something's not supposed to be there. Pineapple juice, I like. Um, I even like tomato juice. Like, uh, I like V8. Um, well, when I used to drink, I, I drank uh, uh, Bloody Marys. And I love the taste, that spicy taste of the tomato juice. Um, and even tomatoes, which are a fruit. Have a juice. It's it's an obvious glaring omission that there is no cherry juice. It's present 
as a flavor in just about every other thing. There's cherry-flavored Kool-Aid. There's cherry-flavored Gatorade. Um, there's cherry-flavored candy and gum. Um, it's all over the place, except there's no juice. I don't get it. There's even cherry cough drops. So I don't. I just don't get it. And I love cherries. It would be like the best juice in the world. Might be because it's so expensive because there's not that much juice inside each cherry. But I think they, even if it was expensive, I would probably buy it. So that's stupid, like I promised. Okay, I'll get into a couple of my lifey things first, and then I'll take a break because I have so many of them today. Let me get right to the creature in the box instance that I was thinking of. One of them is clothing and hair fashion. It amazes me that, and I guess I understand it, but it amazes me how people can be so certain that a hairdo is nice, good, and a hairdo that isn't. I don't like that hair. People aren't wearing their hair like that. That looks like the 50s. And we tend to consider the fashion of the moment to be something larger than just of the moment. I remember this myself in clothing fashion when I saw people wearing bell bottoms in the, in the 1970s, seeing things on TV or movies or whatever, and I thought, how stupid they look. Why would anybody want their pants to be really wide at the bottom? Or low top pants. Like, why would I want the waistline to be below my way below my belly button like that? that that's just stupid. But the whole point is that fashion is arbitrary. And so I see it a lot of times with kids. When I was teaching in the city, um, I saw kids mock styles that they considered stupid without realizing that the style that they exhibited themselves will soon be stupid too once a, a matter of time goes by. Like every current style is arbitrary. You don't, you just don't know it till like a year goes by. And people always, once they get past a few stages of fashion, they look back and go, oh my God, remember when we thought that looked cool? Like I remember in the 80s, we used to peg our jeans. It's like you would take the bottom of the jeans, fold them over each other to make it kind of tapered, and then fold it up like a cuff at the bottom. So your kind of ankle was exposed. A lot of people were wearing like um, bucks, like these suede casual shoes or or uh, boat shoes and no socks. And everyone did it. It was like it was a perfectly normal thing. You looked like everybody else. That was kind of cool. And I guess I didn't mind it. I did it all the time. But. Looking back, I think to do it now, if someone saw it, they'd be like, "That why are you wearing your pants like that? We didn't have a reason when, when we did. Just like the whatever fashion is people are using now, there's no reason for it. I think getting out of the box of thinking that whatever your contemporary situation is has some greater meaning than just that it's what people are doing now. That's what makes it okay or good even. And, and that's also what makes other things bad when they're outside of that box. And it kind of makes it easier to um, accept new fashions. 
oh, they're wearing it like that now. And then you can give it a try. I tend to do this, though. I tend to always go by a form following function. You know, I don't want my pants below my belly button because it's uncomfortable to have them that low. It's like a matter of comfort. And I don't like bell bottoms because I'm short already and the bottoms would definitely be on the ground and I'd be tripping on them and stepping on them with my heels. I definitely don't like skinny jeans. I don't understand the point. I guess it's to show off your body. But jeans themselves are kind of restrictive enough. So on the basis of comfort, I don't think I would. I do like it to be a little bit wider at the bottom because I like to, for it to cover more of my sneaker. I don't know why. And I guess that's where fashion comes in. I just sort of think it looks better. Um, but I remember passing through phases where I wore things that I would not dream of wearing today. Um, for no reason. So I do feel like as time has gone by, I've gotten myself a little bit out of that box. Here's another instance of people in a box. And it has to do with people speaking with accents. Right? Sometimes it's like a, someone speaking English with a foreign accent. Or it's just accents that are different depending on where you are in the, in the country. Regional accents. Everybody has one. You're inside the box because you don't realize that you have one. Enough people around you do it, so it becomes your normal. I, went, I, I spent some time in Texas, and it didn't take more than an hour for people to talk about my New York accent, my Yankee accent, they call it. And they clearly spoke differently. I kind of liked the way that they spoke. Um, but it was kind of weird because I was, I was in my box, and I got there, and I was like, wow, this is a completely different box. And so it kind of reminded me that people who speak with accents, foreigners to America that speak with foreign accents in their English. And like, I'll, again, I used to see my students make fun of people speaking with foreign accents. And I thought to myself, do you have any idea that these people are speaking a second language? Like, this isn't their normal language. They can speak another one fluently and learn this one. And you're failing English now, and it is your language. Talk about being in a box. It's, it's dangerous thinking, and it's foolish thinking, and I think ultimately it exemplifies the idea of what is ignorant. Ignorant of the fact that you, what you see around you is only normal because it's familiar. And um, I think it's a good reminder for myself to kind of give kudos to people who have learned English that came from another place without thinking of them as stupid, which I never did anyway. But when other people do, it, it irks me because I want to say, like, you know, learn your own language first and then criticize them. And then another way that this kind of is exposed is in names. We think the names Brian and Kevin and Samuel are perfectly normal names because we hear them all the time. When you hear a Norwegian name like Torgir, your initial reaction is like, that doesn't make any sense. It sounds like you just took two random syllables and stuck them together and tried to act like it was a name. Completely not realizing that that is exactly what we do. Dennis. It's like you took the sound 
den and you took the syllable nis and you just put them together. Dennis? What kind of name is Dennis? To our ear, it is perfectly normal. Whereas Torgir is not. And we tend to think that foreign names are ugly just because our ears are used to hearing normal names to us. And it's funny, they're kind of cool sounding. I watch a television show called uh, Norseman. A couple of actors that I like, that, and many of them are Norwegian. It takes place in Norway during the Viking Age. It's very funny. I recommend it. It's called Norseman. Um, and their names are, are really cool sounding. And after watching about four or five episodes, the names seem very normal to me. And so, and also, once, it, like, when people are deciding what to name someone or something, they cho they choose on the name alone. But the name isn't really likable or unlikable until it's attached to a person. Like, if there's a person that you like named Rachel. Rachel kind of seems like a good name. If Patricia is a, a woman you hate at work and someone's thinking about naming the child Patricia, you're like, I don't know. I don't really like Patricia. I know a girl named Patricia. Ugh. But it's like, it's so arbitrary. The name isn't good or bad until it's attached to a person who's good or bad. And then once it's attached, the name doesn't matter anyway. You can call people by numbers, and it would still be the person that matters more than the name. Shakespeare said, Rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And um, I, I, my brother was naming his dog, and I kind, of, I kind of lost sight of that when I was suggesting names and reacting to names. Um, I, I, he wanted to name his dog Stanley. He's a hockey coach, so it was kind of after Stanley Cup. Um, forgive me for sharing this, Frank. Um, I wanted, I like Stanley because I like human names for dogs as, as stupid as it is, but they went with Buddy and originally I was against it because I feel like that's what you call your dog if it's a male anyway, right? Like it could be called Max and you'd be calling it Buddy half the time anyway, but I guess now Buddy works and people are just going to think that you're, you're calling your dog Buddy and they're never really going to learn what the name is. Come here, buddy. And then eventually they're going to be like, what is your dog's name? And then you can tell them, buddy. And then they can make their own mind up. Um, I am going to take a quick break now. And then I'm going to get back to another uh, lifey thing uh, about charity spokesmen for um, commercials for charities. And I will get to that right after this message. Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 21. That message was brought to you by my boy Milky. He's back from vacation in, in Wisconsin visiting his family. Everyone is doing well, which is nice to hear. So I will continue on the subject of charity spokesmen. Now, let me set the scene for you. We've all seen these commercials. Um... Sometimes it's just a voiceover, but sometimes in this particular genre of charity commercials, the there's an actor, sometimes a famous actor, but clearly it's an actor. And so picture a sympathetic older man dressed in, say, cargo pants, like a, an outdoorsman look, or like he's an archaeologist or something. He's got like 
sturdy boots on, full beard. He's leaning against the tree in what looks like a third world, like jungle village. There's melancholy music playing in the background. Clearly he's an actor. Maybe he considers himself a philanthropist for doing these commercials for free for some, you know, whatever the charity is cause he purports to care deeply about. He himself is probably very wealthy and he's about to ask all of us to make a donation for just $20 a month. The price of a daily cup of coffee. You could sponsor young Diego here and make sure he has fresh water. Camera pans to Diego, kneeling in the dirt by a polluted puddle, drinking tepid, muddy, bacteria-infested water from a clay bowl. There's like twigs and pebbles swirling around in it. And I'm thinking to myself, whenever I see this, I can't help but think to myself, dude, just give the kid a water bottle. You're standing right freaking there. You see the kid. Like, I'm at home, far away, watching TV. You're right there. Give Diego some water. This is probably a table nearby with, like, cold cuts on it and bottled water of some kind. Just just throw him one. And, like, the commercial finishes, and the director must be like, okay, cut. That's a wrap. Great job, everyone. I really think this will help save some lives. Poor souls dying of thirst. Then he gets into his town car and pours himself a drink. The actor looks at Diego and goes, all right, I did my best for you, kid. Best of luck. And he takes off. Like, that's how I picture it. I'm like screaming at the absurdity of it. For the love of God, give Diego some water. Better yet, take him home. You're just going to leave him there? I don't know. That irks me. Uh, but I will move on. Oh, yo, one more thing. One more thing. I, this is also a, a common trend among celebrities. Celebrities usually raise money by performing concerts from which all proceeds go to some good cause. Like Farm Aid or I remember Breast Cancer one. There was a big AIDS one I remember in the 80s. Um, Feed the World. I remember that one. They had this song. Everyone got together and made it. They did it for free. And like, you know, all proceeds went to whatever the cause was. But what, what I think about when I see those things are, is, first, I'm glad they're doing it because I'm glad they're raising money. But in the end, they reserve their own enormous fortunes, which together, if donated, would have enough money to solve all the problems by themselves. No concert necessary. No publicity points gained. But no, we're going to perform and, and allow ourselves to be seen as great philanthropists. But you need to buy this death CD or song or whatever so that this cause can be supported. I, just, I, don't, I don't understand. Why don't you just give them your money? They're usually always talking about disproportionate wealth, especially among severely poor or severely needy people. Just transfer your wealth right to them. I feel like people are constantly asking the middle class to make up the difference in wealth. And all of these rich people, I think they do it to defend themselves against accusations that they don't have the right to be rich themselves. 
But for some reason, in the end, when it's all over, they remain rich with these giant fortunes. And and Diego is still sipping tepid water with all kinds of bacteria in it, like a Petri dish. So I feel I feel like there's just a little bit of hypocrisy there. And I, ch I tend to change the channel when those commercials get come on the TV. Oh, thank you for letting me vent that. But next time one of those comes on, take, take a look at it and ask yourself, what is going on here? I'm going to take a quick break so I can gather my thoughts on the next topic. And I'll be back right after this. Man, Milky is straight up killing it today. You're happy to be back at work, aren't you, buddy? Take it easy, man. I got a show to do. I appreciate the enthusiasm, though. Okay, moving on to happiness sense. I have a couple of OCD barometers that I've noticed um, in my own life. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that, like I said, changing gears at certain times of the, of the year or season, whatever, you have, to, you have to change gears. Like, you have to change gears when winter comes. Um, you know, sometimes there's life transitions. Like, you have to change gears when you get out of high school and go to college. Or just go back to school. For students and for teachers, it's kind of what people are getting ready to go through now. Your life becomes very different when school starts again. Um, even if you're doing summer school, which I did, the rigors of regular school are much different. Um, but uh, I, I feel like in the past, I, I would change my gears manually. Let me explain. I would see a change coming. Like, say, in the last week of August, I would know that school is starting in the first week of September. And it would, it would just appear in my mind a lot more often. Like, this change is coming. I'm okay. I guess I should start preparing for this change. And I do this kind of thing where I, I start to try and manually shift my gear. Like, it, like in a manual transmission. And it causes me... I used to do it all the time, and I think it was a source of unhappiness. Because it ended up really just kind of being a worry, like a weight that I was carrying. And the weight was not relieved until I actually began the new thing. Until I actually completed my first day of, of back at school. Or, you know, if, say it's a vacation, it's your first day back at work. Or a long weekend even sometimes. The first day back can seem like, you know, a thing on your mind when that last vacation day is coming. But it doesn't really get relieved until you begin the new thing. So you, it's not really possible to change the gear before it happens. All you really do is worry about it. At least that's what I always did. And um, I feel like by nature we have automatic transmissions like a car, not manual. And, and worrying about it doesn't really help. I mean, of course you have to prepare for it. But even that is not the same as once it changes. That, that grind, if, you, if you're not, I mean, I mean that in a good way. The daily grind is, it's work. But if it's work that you love, then, you know, you don't really feel it grinding on you. And some people don't like their job. They, they, all they do it for is, is to make money to support their family. And it's just like this thing they have to do. They have to push the rock up the hill, let it roll down the other side, run around, push it up to the top again, let it roll down the same side. Go back around and at the end they get a paycheck and they can use it to buy nice clothes and have good dinners and go on nice vacations but the work part of it itself 
that's a, a gear I would not like to ever have to change to. And uh, I know what it's like because I used to, and now I don't, and it is a world of difference. But either way, in, in either case, I think changing gears happens automatically. And, and you, while you need to prepare for it, you don't need to worry about it. You can't put it in the gear until that time comes and it just goes into the gear. I always t talk to my wife about it, like even after a weekend or especially after a vacation, say like a Christmas vacation and you're getting ready to go back and, and you know, you kind of feel that anticipation of having to go back to work like it's going to be some giant pain. When, what always happens, even though you forget it every time, is that after the first day, it's like you were never gone. Because the gear just shifts. And then you go about your life as you normally would during a period of work. And and there's no, the sky doesn't fall. It was something that I subconsciously allowed to weigh on my brain. And I guess the real choice is is find a job that you enjoy. It's still work. It's not the same as this little COVID vacation we have. But if you like your job, especially if you like your job, when, when the gear automatically shifts, it feels good. Something different. Something obviously that you want, unless you hate your job, like I said. But that's a whole different thing. That's about making change. Uh, that you're unhappy with. I don't know if I could do a job where I uh, my sole purpose was to make money. I didn't enjoy something intrinsic about it. I guess that's easy to say because teaching is a cool thing. I mean, even people that have other jobs like like teaching their children how to ride a bike or help them with their homework or whatever. It's, there's a, an intrinsic pleasure in it. I, I wish for everyone to have an intrinsic pleasure in their job. That is one happiness. And another OCD was, um, I don't know if, if you're like me um, and you have a cell phone, probably a smartphone. I, I have um, the function where I can push the button on the side and the phone goes dark and the screen goes inactive. And so I don't really have to worry about it switching to something else or turning something on. Like sometimes I'll look and the flashlight will be on. I was like, oh, man, I didn't hit the button on the side. And what I find myself when I'm transferring my phone from, like, the charger to my pocket or from my pocket to another pocket or into the little slot I have in my car that I put it in, I, I during the transition process, I almost always try to never touch the screen of the phone out of some fear that it's going to activate and change something. And then, like, because it, it does happen. You, you pick your phone up and there's, like, seven pages open from different websites because it, somehow it heard you talking and went to one or you pushed a button that you didn't mean to and went to another one. And, and it's like, it's a, it's a nuisance to be able to, 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 to not be able to move your phone around without touching the screen. It's so stupid. It's so OCD. It's hard for me to get myself. I'm embarrassed telling you this. It's hard for me to get myself to let myself touch the screen when I move it. Like it's any other object. And just presume that the screen's not going to go to some wild website. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to start touching the screen of my phone and not caring where it goes. I'll just X out of everything if I forgot to touch the button on the side.
Um, I hope there's at least a couple people out there who have that degree of OCD. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um, here's another one. Uh, I try to allow for something in my list of things to be not done that day. Or allow at least for the things that I have in my list of things to be done in a different order than I listed them. Just to see if the sky doesn't fall. Because I, 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 even if I don't write it down, I, my plan is I'm going to do this and then that and then that and then that. As though I have this understanding of how that will make me have a pleasurable day. And then something inevitably happens. It's like when the war plan meets the war. It never, ever stays the same. And it, I let it get to me sometimes. And I, I try to remind myself, you know what? If all these things are meant to be done, you will do them all. And it doesn't really matter what order, unless there's something that absolutely has to be done at a certain time. But a lot of the other stuff doesn't, you can move it. Like, you know, I was going to swim before I um, did the podcast. And then I was like, you know what? No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the podcast first because I have these ideas in my head and I'll swim later. And then I, my, my OCD mind is like, yeah, but what if you don't? You already passed the normal time that you do it. What if you just blow it off? And what if you blow it off tomorrow and the next day and the next day? You're going you're gonna to gain all your weight back. That never happens. Even if I leave it out and don't swim or do some schoolwork or clean something or whatever, I will get to it. And if I don't, it's probably because I wasn't meant to that day. So I know I talk about lists a lot and uh, how they create a state of mind. But those are the two points that allow for something in your in your list to not get done. And you don't even sometimes know which it's going to be. But just leave it in there in parentheses in your list. If one of these doesn't get done, that's okay. Now, I'm way too OCD to say two of these things might not get done. I can't have that happen. That's a little bit too far. But I have some room to work with. And so I let myself not get one of them done. And I, and I will allow them to occur in a different order without fearing that the sky is going to fall because I didn't do them in the order that I had prescribed. I am that crazy. But at least I'm aware of it. I'm At least I'm outside the box looking. Most of the time. Um, all right. Uh, the next thing I'm going to get to is larger things. But I do need a quick break. I want to take a drink of water. I wish I could share some with Diego, but I don't know if you know where the hell he is. But... Um, I will be right back, and I will talk about uh, not. I thought I might have said, yeah, Pat, uh, Patrick O'Neill. Or no, I'm sorry, Robert O'Neill. See, I even forgot his name. But we'll talk about Robert O'Neill after this quick break. Now I can't stop the dude. He is doing a good job, though. Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 21. I'm not going to talk about my larger thing today. Um, and it is about Robert O'Neill. Let me tell you about him. <clears throat> Tom O'Neill and Diane Johnson are the parents of Robert O'Neill. I bring them up because they must be very proud people. Um, I know my parents were proud when I, you know, of my my accomplishments. But Robert O'Neill has a very particular accomplishment. And like I said, in this climate of, of remembering people's names for bad things that happened to them, I think we should also remember names of people who did great things um, for, for our country. 
Uh, and his name came to mind today. It came to my mind because I was swimming, my, my swim, and I was swimming hard. And it, I felt how taxing it was on my body. And, I, yes, I was kind of proud of myself that I was able to do it so vigorously. And then I thought of Navy SEALs. And I felt like a regular person again. Like the the swimming training that they do, I think both to build their bodies and their cardiovascular systems, and but also because a lot of times doing their job, they're in water. The frogmen of old. And um, they the training Navy SEALs do is... I watched the documentary on it. it. It is the most crazy envelope pushing training you can imagine, especially the stuff they do in water, how long they hold their breath, how far they have to swim, especially in the ocean. You know, they're doing it with limited visibility and usually heavy things on their back. And a lot of them don't make it. In this documentary, I, it, it showed how, you know, at least half of the people that are trying leave. And if they've had enough, they go ring this bell and everyone knows another one bit the dust. But Robert O'Neill did not bite the dust. Robert O'Neill graduated from SEAL training and then began his work as a Navy SEAL. Um, and so that's how I started thinking about him. Rob O'Neill is the man who killed Osama bin Laden. And the raid in Abbottabad. Uh, which is a funny name. <laughs> But I don't like to celebrate deaths in general. But if possible and reasonable to celebrate any deaths, it would be Osama bin Laden. I remember 9-11 very, very clearly. And it's funny how when I when I talk to young people about it, especially students, it, it happened before, some of them happened before they were born. Most of them. Especially now that I teach younger kids. It, and it must be like the way I felt when people mention Pearl Harbor and they would say, we shall never forget. And to me, it was just an, a, a thing that happened in history. When you experience something in the, in the present moment, like, like the twin towers and uh, the, the, the mass devastation that was called caused imagining people fleeing from f fire of, of jet fuel, jumping to their death rather than burning to death. All the people that lost their lives trying to help them. Just the, the, the outrageous amount of suffering that Al-Qaeda, led by Osama bin Laden, founded by Osama bin Laden, caused in American life. And I feel like, I, I feel like it's okay to celebrate the, the killing of Osama bin Laden by Robert O'Neill. Keep saying his name so you remember, you remember it. Um, he's right up there with Hitler. I'm sure if there's a hell, those two might be like sharing bunks. If there's a prison in hell, they're probably in that too. And I'm sure if they were captured and tried, they would have undoubtedly been given multiple life sentences if they weren't put to death. So they're most likely locked up probably even in hell. Now that is back-to-back -back life sentences. This one and the next one. They're probably cellmates. They probably can't even go brush their teeth without a team of COs because even prisoners have a hierarchy. And so there's probably one in hell, too. And bin Laden must be right there near the bottom with Hitler and the child traffickers, child sex offenders. 
They're probably on suicide watch. I wonder if that's possible. But I've seen Rob O'Neill in many interviews. I've read a, a, a lot about his background. I haven't read his book, but I, I think I will. I was amazed learning about him, about how ordinary he was. Now, obviously, he's extraordinary. But how ordinary his typical, his background and upbringing was. If you saw him in a crowd, you would never be able to pick him out as an elite, specially trained killer. He's not huge or muscle-bound. In fact, he's kind of scrawny, though I'd never say that to his face or anywhere near him. He's sort of tall, but not super tall. He's not, like, you know, crazy tall like a seven-foot basketball player. I'm not exactly sure. Probably, like, 6'1 or 6'2. Maybe 6'3. Um, he, you know what he looks like here? He looks like your typical college basketball three-point shooter. He's probably awesome at basketball, too. Even his name, Robert O'Neill, is so common, I forget it. I, I say Patrick sometimes, or and I, I'll start trying to come up with his first name. It's so ordinary. There's probably 12 of them in, in every city's phone book, if there were phone books still. He's from a very average place, Butte, Montana. Not even, not even a, a major city. It's just, just like him. It's, it's so nondescript. But Robert O'Neill made a decision to pursue a difficult and I think noble goal to become a Navy SEAL. And he did it. But he got me thinking about what supreme bragging rights Robert O'Neill's parents must have wherever they go. Like whenever they're at the barbecue or a party and someone brings up uh, some accolade of their child. My son was recently elected Attorney General of Tennessee. Really? Mine killed bin Laden. Like even if some of our parents are proud of their own son becoming an elite Navy SEAL and they're beaming about it, people start like shushing them to stop before Rob O'Neill's dad comes back from the bathroom because just being a Navy SEAL doesn't cut it in his company. So why did I bring that up? Because... I feel like normal, everyday Americans that put their mind to something can accomplish it. Now, I know that a certain amount of talent is required. You have to have an aptitude. But without the work that goes into it, and becoming a Navy SEAL is an insane amount of work. Um, I just feel like it deserves a salute. So lift your glass for Robert O'Neill. And his parents, whose names are Tom O'Neill and Diane Johnson. He did a pretty good job raising that guy. And with that, I've come to my end. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening. I hope to see you soon, hopefully tomorrow.